You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to get back into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, we'll do a little bit of review to remind ourselves where we were. But first, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your spirit who brings us your word, who puts it into our hearts and causes us to obey you by your grace. And Lord, uh, it's not a, a robot thing, but a love thing. And <laughs> that's a weird way to say it, but uh, you have every ability to move in your people every day, to make them like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to, to shout that beauty to the world so that the world knows that he is worth following. He is worth our lives. He is worth everything we can give him. And we want to do that this morning as we study your word. We ask you for insight. We ask you for wisdom. We ask you for patience, whatever it is that we need, so that we might inculcate these things into our walk every day. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to go ahead and read the entire chapter, and then we'll have a little um, review. Chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, page 1477. That's weird. You can have be 1477 and only two-thirds of the way through the book. I wonder how they made these pages so thin. 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. Actually, we'll read through um, this morning... We'll read through 16, verse 16. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except for except by agreement, for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry and to burn. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? There are some interesting directions that Paul takes in this section of 1 Corinthians. But before we get there, let's just quickly remind ourselves, we left off with verse 5, and 
in the beginning of this this chapter, remember, Paul is saying to the, the Corinthians, he said, now, concerning the things that you wrote to me about. So obviously he's dealing with the letter that the Corinthians sent to him. And they asked him a series of questions, which he deals with in these next four chapters, uh, possibly five. Um, and in that they wrote, they asked him, is it good for a man not to touch his wife? They were struggling with this, probably what was in the church, the infancy of asceticism, true institutional asceticism, which began to flourish, unfortunately, and it, it uh, produced the monastic system and all of the, the false teachings that come from that. Asceticism is is denying yourself even things that are obviously good in order to bring your body under control, uh, or at least that's what's thought. It's, it's serious self-denial. Um, so they would do, they would do crazy things. They would flog themselves. They would deny, they would not eat for, for days, not as a proper fast to the Lord, but to, con- to learn to control their hunger. Unfortunately, uh, and, and then in this particular case, as the Corinthians would, would look at what they thought were proper ways of honoring the Lord, they thought in their marriages that they should have stayed single because then they could have been fully devoted to the Lord, but they're married so they'll just deny the proper responses that husbands and wives are supposed to have to each other and that that would bring God's favor. And Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, and so the first part of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 he said, he answers that question. When you wrote to me that a man should not touch his, uh, a man should not touch his wife, he said, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. And that's not the reason necessarily, just because of immoralities. But in Corinth, remember we talked about the fact that it would have been difficult to walk down the street and maintain your purity if you didn't have blinders on. It was a decadent, horrific culture. Um, and each and every day, these folks had to live in that. So they thought that it would be spiritual to deny the, the, the normal marital relationship from each other. And Paul, in verse 3, not only denies that, he says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Uh, it's not only wrong for a man not to touch his wife, it's his responsibility to meet all of her needs, including the need for marital relations. The idea that it was spiritual to withhold contact and not have a proper sexual relationship was was anathema to the Christian message, to the Christian concept of marriage. The wife was to assume the same responsibility to her husband. So Paul talked about that. You must fulfill your responsibilities to one another. Um, verse 4, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. As if to punctuate the importance of this concept, Paul tells the men that they are not the only authority over themselves. And he tells the women the same. In a very real way, the spouses can exercise authority, if you will, over their mates. Hopefully, it would not come to that. Men would delightedly fulfill their responsibilities to their wives and vice versa. That is the hope. That is the concept of the Christian marriage. Do you think Christ, when he came to earth, went, he threw his hat down, said, okay, I'll do it. They're a bunch of dorks, but I'll do it. Well, he would have been right on that second one. No, he didn't. He did it lovingly. He did it in full submission to the Father. He did it 
obediently. He did it delightedly. He did it with a view towards eternity, with a view towards how it was going to transform those who trusted in him into the very essence of the Spirit of God. And not in so much that they become gods. That, that's, that was a poor, that was a poor choice of words. That they would become, by the grace of God, true followers of the Father. True followers of the Son. And so that's how it should be in the marriage. The husband shouldn't throw his hat down and say, all right, I'll pack the wood. But you better know, you better own up to what I did. It should be that they delightedly do for each other what is their responsibilities. They don't even look at them as responsibilities. They look at them as joys, as delights. Um, and I think it gets, it does get to that. I, I know when I do the things I do for Kim, I actually have learned, I'm weird, but I actually have learned to enjoy them. Um, because I know it brings her happiness. It brings her grace. It brings her joy. So this authority thing, Paul is, he's using that right now to kind of bring these, what's the word I'm looking for? These just these recalcitrant Corinthians into line. They have got so many bad ideas. They almost, at one point, I understand they went into the, to the, um, Greece, to the, into Athens, to the patent office to see if they couldn't patent some of their bad ideas. They were so well thought through. Okay, that was a bad joke. Verse 5, he says, stop depriving one another. Now get this. This is in a culture, some of, today we think that the men ran everything. If the man didn't say it, it didn't happen. It's not what Paul's saying here. He says, stop depriving one another except for agree, by agreement. The husband and the wife would have to agree in order to stop the marital relationship. And what for? For a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the only reason was for prayer, was to devote that time to prayer. Verse 6 is where we will pick up. But at any rate, are there any questions on on the, re- the little bit of review there? Do, do you kind of get the picture that Paul is trying to build a picture of marriage that is way different than what the Corinthians have? It's not a, it's not a job. It's not a, an onerous responsibility, but it's to be a delight. It's to be two people who love each other, who care for each other, who spend their lives on each other in the Lord. That's what Paul's trying to get across to these Corinthians. And then in verse six, he says, referring back to all of that, but this I say by way of concession, not of command. Paul refers back to all that he has just uh, said about marriage. Not to just the last verse, but to the entire section. He's not commanding people to get married. Concession can also be translated awareness. This I say by way of awareness. I'm aware of what's going on. Paul is aware of the potentialities of being single and of being married. And he is not elevating one over the other. He's just talking about realities in a world where he believes he's not completely uncertain that Jesus might not be coming back tomorrow. And you know what? We need to think that way today. Could he come back tomorrow? Are we ready? I think about it sometimes and I wonder, you know, there's an awful lot I should have done for him before he comes back. So that's what Paul's attitude is here. The point is, if you're single, that's fine. If you're married, practice the normal aspects of marital life. Don't misunderstand what marriage is about and don't deprive one another. And it, and again, as it, it seems like the Corinthians almost have the corner on being able to misunderstand things. So any comments about verse 6? Yet I say this by way of concession, not of command. Verse 7. Now here's an interesting one. Yet, he says, 
I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul allows that although he believes that the grueling service required in founding the church was best served by men that were single, he knows that not all men will have the gift of singleness that only God can give. And remember, Peter was called when he was married by the Lord Jesus Christ as a disciple. We know that. And so he acknowledges that some will be able to and some will not be able to. Both can fully serve God and glory. That is, some can serve as some will be able to serve singly and some will not be able to. Both can serve, can fully serve God and glorify Him as well. Now, the Jewish tradition of Paul's day can give insight into why he would say something like this. It was almost considered a sin and indeed in many cases poor teaching, but it was considered a sin if married, if men remained unmarried. Uh, if he was, if a man wasn't married by the time he was 20, some of the ancient Jewish rabbis considered that a sin. And so that's where some of this could have come from. Paul would have been aware of that. As mentioned early, unmarried men were often considered to be excluded from heaven and were not considered to be real men at all. Um, <clears throat> Paul acknowledges that God will gift every believer in the direction that he wants them to go. Whether it is married or single, he concedes here that his giftedness by God, that, that his giftedness by God that should determine the direction a person goes, whether he is single or married. It's God's giftedness. It's God's in, instruction. It's God's direction for the individual, whether he goes, whether he works as a married or an unmarried person. Very soon he will make the case for singleness as he is single. And so it's important to note that should God, should God call someone to a life of singleness, he will provide the grace to live that life. The Lord Jesus refers this in refers to this in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 11 and 12. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who was able to accept this, let him accept it. It's commonly understood that this that Jesus may not necessarily just be referring to physically created eunuchs, but to those who have chosen to live that lifestyle as well. And so the Lord will give the grace necessary to those whom he has called to live singly. And he will give the grace necessary to those whom he has called to live as a married couple. Any comments or questions? Verse 7. Verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Now he gets to some individual uh, information or in individual instruction, individual advice. His thinking, living as he was in the beginning of the church and what possibly follows the end of the age, was to remain as you were and get busy for the gospel. So to those who are unmarried, his counsel for them right now is to stay unmarried if they can. That was his counsel to them if they can. There are some who believe that the word unmarried refers to widowers because this verse also singles out widows. That is, however, a very unlikely translation. There is actually a Greek word for widowers. Um, others believe that this, because verse 11, in dealing with a divorced woman, calls her unmarried, that the word refers to divorced women. Verse 11 says, But if she does leave, the wife leaves her husband, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So he's talking in verse 11 about a potentially divorced woman. So some believe that, that because of that, he's talking to uh, divorced women. The most natural translation is simply the general term unmarried people, whether it refers to those who have never been married or to those who have been divorced. It seems to cover both to those. So he says to them in verse eight, 
But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I am. So unmarried, just a simple word, it means unwedded, single, uh, not married. It could, it could be someone who's been married. It could be someone who's never been married. It's a general term. And that's what Paul uses. One other interesting observation. Paul says that it is good for them to remain even as I, indicating that he is remaining in a state of being unmarried. This is also in the minds of some indicates that he was likely at once one time married. Any comments or questions about verse eight? Verse nine. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Lest we think Paul is simply telling people with little self-control to get married so they don't have to have self-control, it is important to remember several things. First of all, he has given much advice about marriage elsewhere, and none of it comports with that idea, that you just get married because you can't handle not being married. That's not his idea here. He is dealing with the practical implications of living in a case in time and is taking into consideration his view that they were in the very end times. John MacArthur gives us some advice on this. I I read through this advice. It's pretty good advice. I'm just going to list it out here. Um, Number one, first, he says, unmarried people should not simply seek to be married, but should seek a person they can love, trust, and respect. Letting marriage come as a response to that commitment of love People who simply want to get married for the sake of getting married run a great risk of marrying the wrong person. And I know people like this. And I'm sure you do too. And I'll just speak it out boldly. Don't get married over the internet. I know three of those marriages. They all ended badly. Now, there's going to be the exception. But for crying out in the sink, would you... I just... Well, I'll get into that later on about some of the practical aspects, impractical aspects of that. Second, it is time, it is fine to be on the lookout for the right person, but the best way to find the right person is to be the right person. If believers are right with God and it is his will for them to be married, he will send the right person and never too late. It's not like the Holy Spirit goes, how am I going to get this person married? I don't know what to do. Jesus, how do we, what, what do you think? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they know exactly how it needs to be in your life. I know that sounds like a Christian cliche, but it's a fact. It's a fact of Scripture. It's not like they need help. Third, until the right person is found, our energy should be should be redirected in ways that will be the most helpful in keeping our minds off of the temptation. That's kind of what Paul's talking about here. Two of the best ways are spiritual service and physical activity. We should avoid listening to, looking at, or being around anything that strengthens the temptation. That's good advice for all through our lives, by the way. Um, we should program our minds to focus only on that which is good and helpful. We should take special care to follow Paul's instructions in Philippians. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if any and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Philippians 4, uh, chapter 4. Fourth, we should realize that until God gives us the right person, he will provide strength to resist temptation. God is faithful the Bible says, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. That way of escape, by the way, the Greek word that's translated is usually considered back in those days as a a steep high mountain pass. Sometimes the way out out of temptation is difficult, but there is always a way out. And finally, we should give thanks to the Lord for our situation and be content in it. Salvation brings the dawning of a new day. 
in which marriage in the Lord is an option. So, if we're not content with what we have, we will never be content with what we want. Any comments about verse 9? Be the right person, Jenny. Oh, I forgot to, I think there's, for those of you that are writing stuff down, I was supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Two different situations. I think as Paul's writings advanced, not that the Holy Spirit didn't have this in mind, but here he's talking to people who have got everything wrong. They've got everything wrong. I mean, they probably baked cakes wrong. They probably... Okay, I've made my point. So his point is, and you're talking about back in which verse? Where he tells young widows to, to remarry. First Timothy five. Okay, that's in context here, dealing with uh, support of the family and and the ministry that women will have in the church. So I'd have to spend some time. Right, and he does say also that in the latter times that that godless men will tell people not to get married. So. You have to think about the context here where he's dealing with the Corinthians again, who have got everything wrong. They, they can't see, I, I would like, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see what was in the letter that they wrote to him. You know, the actual wording of the questions. I get the impression that the questions wasn't, the wording wasn't something like, dear Paul, do you think it's better for us not to touch our wives? I think it was more like, Paul, you're an idiot. You have no idea what's going on in Corinth. And if you did, you'd shut your mouth and you'd come here and you'd do it the way we're doing it. Here's how we think it should be. That's how I think that letter was probably worded. But that's just my imagination. Okay, that's not scriptural. So Paul was dealing with people who were recalcitrant at every turn about the things that they had to do, about the things that God wanted them to do. So yes, as I, as I pointed out earlier, um, Paul at other places, he gives different, not different, but more uh, more deep advice about marriage. Widows should marry, young widows should marry, especially in the church, in the system, a situation where they're, they're raising young children and they are involved in church ministry. So this was later on, Second Timothy is just before he's, this would be about, uh, 64 AD, somewhere in there, 64 AD, several years later, where he's about ready to be, what did he say, poured out as a drink offering for Christ. So, and I will get more into that as we get into the next sections. But to the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. Did someone have their hand up? Okay. Not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Paul does not give instructions to unbelievers. So, this should be understood to be delivered to Christians. His simple advice to married Christians is that they should not separate. In this verse, he instructs Christian wives not to leave their Christian husbands. Paul does not normally refer back to the Lord Jesus in this way. He simply, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, communicates biblical truth equal to and on par with the instructions of the Son of God. In this particular case, though, he is indicating to the Corinthians that this instruction has gone through the proper channels and is being communicated from the great authority, the Lord. So, um, often he will go back. So this is a, a word that means he author. It's a, God commands believers to act as he authorizes them through the revelation of faith accordingly. 
So this has gone through the proper channels. It is coming from the Lord that you should not leave your husbands. You should not leave your wives. That would be out of Matthew 19 and uh, other places. Mark chapter 10, I believe. I should have written those down, but we'll get to those too. Um, so it is this Paul says to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. So I thought about really beating this, but that's pretty clear. What's he saying? Don't leave your husbands, married, believing, believing wives, believing husbands. Christian marriage, figure it out. We'll get to how to figure it out. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse 11. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Corollary to that instruction, Paul tells a woman who does leave that she must remain unmarried or be reconciled. There are no alternatives. There's nothing listed here as an alternative. He further instructs the husbands not to divorce their wives. In Jewish culture, women could not divorce their husbands, but in the Greco-Roman culture, they could. And Paul deals with that in the culture. There is general consensus that this verse, talking to Christian married folks, leaves no room for them to divorce one another. There are those who teach that because of the exception clause in Matthew 19.9, that divorce is allowed for sexual immorality. Even in that situation, though, divorce is not commanded. It is simply allowed in, in 19.9, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. So Paul is actually taking up the the gauntlet, if you will, that the Lord Jesus laid down, giving marriage a sacred and permanent concept. The idea was that it reflects the relationship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 4. When will that end? When will he divorce us? Once we've trusted him because of his grace in our lives. He brought us to him. He called us in time past. We're one of the elect. We've trusted. We've become a Christian. When will that end? Anybody got a date? 2015? Well, that was last year. 2,807 in the year 25. That's what that song was about. Anybody remember the song in the year 2525? I've just ruined the whole class, haven't I? (sighs) Okay. Anyway, don't get your theology from from rock music. From the beginning, Jesus said it's not been that way. And that's what Jesus took the Pharisees back to. He didn't debate their their nitpicking that you could divorce her for burning the toast, because you probably could in Moses' day. He said this, in the beginning, it was not that way. Men and women who marry one another are expected to stay married. This section of scripture happens to be one that is interpreted in light of other scriptures in a couple of different ways. And I think I've got them all. The gist of them is this. One, divorce is never allowed. Two, divorce of Christians is never allowed. Three, divorce is allowed for sexual immorality within the marriage. And four, divorce is only allowed during the betrothal or engagement period. Our takeaway from this should at least be that the marriage covenant is sacred, serious, lifelong, and it's a delightful commitment. We spend far more time qualifying what type of car we buy than we do making sure the one we marry is qualified. Indeed, in many cases, neither party is qualified, and the fact is it's a miracle that so many marriages last as long as they do. It doesn't have to be a forensic audit. 
But care should be taken by the two looking to be married, as well as their parents, to look into things. And this is what happens over the Internet. You think you can get to know that person from a distance? I'm sorry, you can't. Now, there are going to be exceptions, you know. There are exceptions. I've seen dynamite that didn't go off, too. But I waited 30 minutes before I went up and checked it out. For example, someone I know came up with a list of qualifications for marriage, and he found 25 for men and 29 for women. I think he was chauvinistic, but that's another thing. Here are some of them. Men must honor his mother and father. Honor your mother and your father that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God hath given thee, Exodus 20.12. He must be a Christian. That should be a given. But unfortunately, it often isn't. When a young Christian woman is looking for a man, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh, Genesis 2.24. And can two walk together except they be agreed, Amos 3.3. And be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness, Second Corinthians 6.14. Husbands, girls, you're looking for a new husband. He should be a hard worker. And then you, you read Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, about the ant who provides. Followed up with, for even when we were with you, Paul said to the Thessalonians, he said, we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should they eat. And then he also said in Timothy, but if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. First Timothy 1, or 5, 8. So a man should be a hard worker. He must not be an angry person. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm saying that someone should have to have come to perfection in these areas. Because nobody's going to come to perfection in these areas. But it should be clear that the person is working towards this and that you should be able to establish that. Um, Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. A prospective husband should be established and able in the word of God. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church, 1 Corinthians 14.35. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach and patient. So... Those are just a few ideas. Um, and I find, at least in my experience in counseling young people, that when you say, well, do you know if the guy's angry? No. You really don't want to marry an angry man. Because unless you've got really, really good health insurance and you have a personal relationship with the people at the ER, you know, I mean, I joke about it, but how often does that happen? Women... Um, this are just a few of them. Should be known as chaste, modest, and pure. First Peter 3, 1 through 5 indicates, gives us that information. They should be known as a student of the word. The women should be known as a student of the word. Young men, are you looking for a wife? Is she a student of the word? She studies to show herself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Again, she should not be an angry person. I've known some angry women. Actually, I grew up around some of them. Very difficult to remain out of a cast sometimes, must willingly and cheerfully have all the children God might have. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. They should be willing to be taught by the older godly women in the church to help them rear their children. The aged women in Titus chapter 2, likewise, that they be in behaviors becoming holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So that's just a few. A few. The point is, the last time I bought a pickup, I spent quite a bit of time verifying 
information about the drivetrain, about the engine, the uh, the potential rust, things like that. And I I would hope that as our children and our, our young people are considering marriage in the future, that we take at least as much time in determining if they're going to get a good car. I know it sounds almost commercial, but what's the alternative? The alternative is a 50% divorce rate. So in the same way that we are losing our republic because we do not understand how it is supposed to work, so marriages fail because of the unrealistic expectations people have when they enter into them. One of the pictures that the marriage gives is of our relationship to Christ, in our relationship to Christ, is that of reconciliation. That is a huge, that is the part of our relationship to Christ. We have been reconciled to God through the work, only the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks volumes to the world when Christians cannot reconcile their differences in their marriages and they divorce. If Christ has no power to reconcile the marriage partners to each other, then how could he have any power to reconcile at all? It is possible in some situations that the woman must leave her husband because of abuse or some other reason. This does not necessarily justify divorce. It may very well justify separation, but that would be all. Now, there are always the difficult situations. There are always the hard, harsh situations. There are always the situations that we already have in our bodies where people have come to us. And how they have come to us is how we accept them. How they are in the Lord as they are growing in the Lord is how we, tr- how we teach them to grow even further. So if, if a couple comes to us that has been from divorced marriages, the Bible nowhere instructs them to undivorce, go back to their original. Actually, it talks about that in Deuteronomy that it would be, it would defile the land. So when they come to us in those situations, what do we do? We love them. We work with them. We train them. We build into them the permanency of marriage from that point on. And then we hope to bring up a generation who will who will continue in their marriages as they are married in Christ. Any comments or questions about verse 11? One of the most difficult verses I have to ever have ever had to deal with. Verse 12. But to the rest I say, not I, excuse me, but to the rest I say, not the Lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Now, I am seeing, unfortunately, in, in Christ, Christian talking and, and uh, discussions that what Jesus had to say is more important than what Paul had to say. That Paul was just an apostle. That is not what Scripture teaches. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that the man of God may live. All Scripture. So that means from Genesis 1 to Revelation, and I've forgotten how many chapters are in Revelation, but to that last chapter, to the last chapter, all of it. So he deals with those in Corinth who were married to unbelievers. Certainly they thought it would be wise and godly to divorce my unbelieving spouse so that I can be closer to the Lord. Not true, says Paul. He tells the men here to stay with their unbelieving wives. The responsibilities to love, honor, and cherish them are not reduced one whit. Not one whit. They should have thought this through before they got married if they were believers. It's also very possible that after the marriage, one of them came to the Lord and the other did not. In any event, Paul tells them, stay together. (laughs) Maybe they were worried that being married to an unbeliever would would defile them uh, before the Lord. Nothing of the sort, Paul says. In fact, in verse 14, he will put that to rest and we'll get there. When Paul says that the Lord 
And this is in relationship to what I started out discussing on this verse. When Paul says that the Lord is not saying this, he's not saying that it is not inspired. He is simply noting that Jesus did not have a direct teaching on this, but that he does. And that direct teaching was inspired by the Holy Spirit, just as important as the the Son of God's teaching on marriage in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And his teaching is inspired just as Jesus' word. Teaching is predicated upon the premise, upon the premise of the permanence of marriage. So both Jesus and Paul are teaching about the permanence of marriage. Paul would have in mind here what Jesus was saying when he said, what God has joined together, let not man pull apart or put apart. So in the early days of the church, especially at Corinth, believers would put away their unbelieving spouse in the name of some sort of spirituality. Some of the early secular writers, um, I was trying to remember who it was, Tertullian, well, Tertullian wasn't, he wrote about it as well. But uh, some of the early secular writers said this, um, it was actually decried the fact that Christianity broke up marriages. One of the commentators said this, he said, in fact, one of the great heathen complaints against Christianity was exactly that Christianity did break up families and was a disruptive influence in society. Quote, tampering with domestic relationships, unquote, was one of the first charges brought against Christians. In First Peter, First uh, Peter 4, 15. I'll get that in a minute. Sometimes the Christians did, in fact, take a very high stand. Of what parents were you born? A judge asked Lucian of Antioch. And he said, I am a Christian. And a Christian's only relatives are the saints. I have unbelieving relatives. I don't think I'd say that to some of them unless I was 30 feet from them when I said it. Um, but that's that's the high view that that uh, this commentator was talking about. The idea being that in those days, the Corinthians would break up marriages, break up families in the in the in the idea that they were pursuing some sort of spirituality. And that is what Paul is working against here. You're not advancing spirituality. That's a doctrine of demons. And later on, he will say that in, in the end times, men will forbid marriage. So any comments about verse 12? Concerns, questions? Verse 13. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Again, in keeping with the fact that the Greek women could divorce their husbands, Paul tells them not to. If they are believers and their husbands consent to live with them, do not divorce them. So, and I, and that's really all I have on that verse because it just follows on the, actually 12 and 13 go together. Very, very well go together. For verse 14, we'll finish with this. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. This verse is not saying that the unbelieving spouse, that the believing spouse saves the unbelieving spouse but rather that because of their unbelief, because of their belief, excuse me, let me start over. The verse is not saying that the believing spouse saves the unbelieving spouse, but rather that because of their belief, God sets this marriage apart in a different way than two unbelievers being married. It is even different in some respects than the marriage of two believers. There is no need for one to sanctify the other in that case. But in this case, the grace that God gives to the believer extends to the unbeliever and to their children, to their children, hers or his children, depending on its, whether it's the husband or the wife 
that is the believer. Often in such a home, a godly believer can be the catalyst that brings the unbelieving members of the family to the Lord. Some use this verse to justify infant baptism. The general idea is that since the children are holy because of the influence of the believing parent, they're qualified for baptism. First of all, the word holy comes from the same word from which we get the word sanctified, which is set apart. To render or acknowledge, to be venerable or hallow, to separate from profane things and dedicate to God. It was the same word that was used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint for the artifacts of the temple that were set aside for use for God. This word does not indicate some sort of salvific status that it, which has been conferred on those who are in the household of the believer. It simply indicates that the marriage has been set apart by God because of the one believer and that the other members of the family will benefit from the grace that he extends to that believer. Salvation is still a decision that we come to as a work of God in our lives until God works in the lives of those children, bringing them to himself, and until they confess and believe, baptism does nothing for them except wet their hair. If they have been set apart by the believing spouse in such a way that they have now become holy and are qualified for baptism, why doesn't that work for the unbelieving spouse as well? If it works for the kids, if what's good for the, well, goose, it should be good for the gander. If it's good for the kids, it should be good for the dad or the mom. The words used for sanctified and holy are derived from the same Greek word, root hagios, again, which means set apart, set apart to cleanse externally, to dedicate. So that marriage has been dedicated to God. Because of the one believer. But the spouse and the children still need to be saved by the father. There's no instantaneous salvation. I mean, (laughs) that's just, you know, I, I tried to really, as I was working through some of this, it's just hard to believe that actually that would become, that folks would come up with that. But I can kind of see it. I can kind of see it. I was trying to come up with a good analogy and I couldn't come up with one. So, but at any rate, God, because of his grace in the life of the believer, gives a special, that grace extends to the believe, to the unbelieving spouse and to the unbelieving children until the children trust Christ and are baptized. Any questions or comments about that? So, as we come away, and we're going to be talking more about marriage, uh, next week, because this whole chapter pretty much covers what had come up in the Corinthian church regarding marriage and spouses and, and, uh, asceticism and all those things that went along with it in the Corinthian church. But um, the, the general thesis that we should come away from this is both the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul teach that marriage is a lifelong commitment. It's a dedication. It's, a, it's an example to the unbelieving world of the relationship that we have as believers with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that extent, we must confer the same. But Paul deals with, he's going to deal with all the, I think he deals with just about all the exceptions that you can come up with. So, are you married? Stay married. Are you married today at Kootenai Church? Stay married. Are you single? Are you looking for a marriage partner? Look in a godly sort of way and be yourself the person that God wants married. Be yourself the right person. God won't miss you. He won't, he won't forget you. He won't step over you. If he has planned for you marriage, it will happen. But, and I, I would recommend those five, those five, uh, principles that MacArthur laid out. And, and I'll just read, 
read over them, just read over the, the title of them. Seek a person you can love, trust, and respect. Be the right person. Direct your energy in ways that will be helpful in keeping your mind and, and uh, your soul off of temptation. Spiritual service and physical activity. Realize that until God gives us the right person, he will, re- he will provide the strength to resist temptation. And finally, and most importantly, give thanks to the Lord for your situation and be content in it. And that's good advice for all of us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for marriage. Thank you for the, the, the Pauline answers that you gave by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to these folks in Corinth who just had so many issues fouled up. You knew what was needed there. You knew how to go right directly to the specific issue at, at, uh, that was necessary to deal with in that situation. You knew how to take them to task and yet love them through your word. And so we ask that you would help us as we study these things to think them through and to allow your Holy Spirit to bring to uh, bring to us uh, clearness so that we can minister to others who are in whatever difficulty they're in. Because, Lord, you have your idea for each of us. Each of your children is, is a joy unspeakable. And so we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.